It was pretty much just me and the mate on the bridge in the morning. Nobody else was out. And that's when I spotted dipping up and down a little boat. I can't tell you how far, but it was pretty far out. It looked like two guys and a big red flag waving. So I told the, the third mate, I says, uh, we got a little boat out there. I think they're in distress. Hi, I'm Tracy Nguyen Meng, and welcome to Stories of the Vietnamese Boat People. In the last two episodes, we shared stories from extraordinary humanitarians who worked at the Singapore refugee camp where thousands of Vietnamese boat people were brought and temporarily housed until resettlement. The journey of how the refugees arrived at one of the five refugee camps at the time were quite varied. Some sailed for days and weeks out at sea, praying to reach neighboring countries, while others were rescued by different merchant and military ships on duty. And then there were countless of others that were not as fortunate and eventually perished at sea. In this episode, we continue our Faith in Humanity theme with a story from Leo Larson. Well, I grew up in San Francisco. I used to fish off of Muni Pier, which had a nice view of the Golden Gate Bridge. You see ships going in and out all the time. So as a kid, I was really fascinated by ships. Leo knew at a young age that the ocean would always be an extension of his life. At the age of 21, he became a merchant sailor, a member of the Seafarers International Union, the largest North American union representing merchant mariners. So uh, at the age of 21, uh, I got my first ship, it was in Lisbon, New Jersey. And the date I boarded, I remember the first, I never forgot it, it's April 29th, 1975. And also the first day out at sea, we got a report that Saigon had fell. A lot of the crew members were very angry about it. As soon as the fall of Saigon was declared, hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese began to flee the country. The Vietnamese who had ties with Americans fled with the assistance of the United States military and embassy. At this time, others also started to flee by makeshift fishing boats. That number quickly grew after 1975. Leo was very aware of the Vietnamese refugee situation. Being a merchant seaman is a very unique occupation because you go all over the world and guys in the merchant marines seem to be a little bit more interested in what's going on in the world because they're going all over the world. So you're pretty well informed, but even if I wasn't a merchant seaman, I'm sure I would have heard about the boat people because it was pretty big news in the United States. But the war and what he heard in the news was the extent of what he knew when it came to Vietnam and the Vietnamese people. You know, growing up in San Francisco, you're most familiar with Chinese uh, uh, in San Francisco. Filipino too, but mostly Chinese. Um, Chinese culture in San Francisco is very prominent, but the Vietnamese, that was kind of like a recent arrival. When the crisis was happening, I think most Americans, because Vietnam had just ended, I understand it because, you know, growing up during the Cold War, we would always hear about the Cubans getting in their in their boats and making it to Miami because things were so hard under Fidel Castro. And so I took this as this is just like, you know, Cuba, but on a larger scale. Since the start of Leo's career, he spent months at a time at sea, serving on duty for various merchant ships. I shipped out anywhere from six to eight months a year. 
on various ships. So every ship you would get on, it could be an oil tanker, it could be a cargo ship. Uh, and then we had ports uh, we could ship out from uh, anywhere from the West Coast to the uh, Gulf. Uh, we have ports on the East Coast. And we even have one port we don't have right now. We have one port in uh, Yokohama, Japan, which I did ship out of. So uh, that was me. It was kind of like in my blood. Uh, that's what I wanted to be when I was a kid. You know, sometimes you'd be out there for weeks and weeks on end, and all you would see was the ocean. But I liked it. On June 24, 1980, Leo left for a tour of duty for the U.S. Navy chartered merchant vessel the SS Trans-Colorado. He was only 26 years old, one of the youngest crewmen on that ship. The ship was tasked to deliver military supplies to a little island called Diego Garcia in the Indian Ocean. So we're car- carrying a lot of military supplies. And um, I remember at the time, they didn't even have a dock, so they were sending out landing craft. and. Uh, uh, the Seabees, as they're called, were actually offloading the ship. So uh, we were a supply ship uh, for the for the Navy, and uh, we had just sailed away from Diego Garcia. One stormy day on August 11th, 1980, Leo's typical day at sea would change. I was on the 48 watch, which would mean 48 in the morning, 48, 4 to 8 in the afternoon. It was just me, my two watch partners. On that ship, you had two able-bodied seamen to each watch and one ordinary seaman. Normally, one of the guys would have been up on the bow on lookout, but because the seas were rough, they just told him, you know, just hang out in the, in the rec center, sit coffee or whatever. And then we would take turns. Uh, uh, the two able-bodied seamen would take turns on wheel watch. It was just that the seas were pretty rough. It was very gray. So it was pretty much just me and the mate on the bridge in the morning. Um, nobody else was out. And that's when I spotted, I can't tell you how far, but it was pretty far out, dipping up and down a little boat. It looked like two guys and a big red flag waving. So I told the, the third mate, I says, uh, we got a little boat out there. I think they're in distress. And uh, he got his binoculars and he called down to the captain and the captain came up and he says, well, let's, let's pull alongside. So uh, we changed course. I was steering and he, you know, captain gave me a uh, course directions. It was, and uh, we came alongside and we had them on what you would call the leeward side. Uh, what that meant on the port side was all the, all the wind was hitting the ship. And that's how we would lock the wind. So on the leeward side, it wouldn't be as windy and it'd be a lot easier to rescue them. When we pulled alongside, there was two guys, and as we got closer, that's when all of a sudden all these ladies were holding out these little kids, arms fully extended, talking very loudly and very rapidly. That's when the captain turned to the mate. He says, get the deck crew up, get the bosun, and get the deck gang out there, put the Jacob's ladder out, let's get them on board. There were 67 people on a 40-foot wooden boat. It was approximately a 15-feet climb from the fishing boat onto the Trans-Colorado ship. The Jacob's Ladder was drawn down, and the crew assisted the women and children. Once everyone was on the ship, the crew had to sink the fishing boat to prevent any navigational hazards. 
Leo and his mates climbed into the boat and used a fire axe to make holes. Once it started sinking, they quickly had to climb back onto the ship. I'm sure they weren't in good condition. They seemed healthy enough where nobody needed medical care. On a merchant ship, though, you don't have a doctor. Uh, that's one of the things, if you go out to sea, if something happens to you in the middle of the sea, there's no doctors to help you. So usually this, I think it's the second mate who's sort of the first aid guy. So I'm sure they were checked out. I don't remember anybody being sick, but I'm sure they weren't in the best of condition. The ship changed course to head towards Subic Bay, Philippines, where there was a refugee processing center to help prepare refugees for immigration and resettlement in Western nations, such as Canada, Norway, Australia, France, and primarily the United States. They were all on a stern, they're all eating, and this one guy, uh, I, I don't know how it happened, but we just started talking. I guess I found out he spoke English. And I asked him, I said, um, how many ships passed you guys by? And from my memory, it was like six or seven. And uh, I says, we were, were we the first American flagship? He goes, yes, you were. And I seem to recall that we were pretty much their last hope. Um, and the seas were really rough. And uh, if I was fooling around, it, I wouldn't be, but and guys aren't, you know, you're on lookout, you're on lookout. But if I didn't notice them, for whatever reason, if we were, maybe we were steering a little bit different course, uh, they probably would have just disappeared over the horizon because uh, they were there all of a sudden and, and we acted pretty fast. But he told me um, he got on board, but his parents couldn't get on board. His parents were working in re-education camps and he didn't think they would survive. Uh, and I asked him about a little boy who was there and I said, who does he belong to? Because he seemed to just kind of be wandering around by himself. I didn't notice anybody taking care of him. He says, well, his parents put him on board. They couldn't join him. Wow. And how old was that little boy that was there by himself? I think he was about, he's a toddler. As an American, even though I grew up in the city of San Francisco, and uh, you see a lot, something like that, even though you may read it in a magazine, but when you see it live, you know, with your own eyes, it's, it's very impactful. So that, that, I would say, really kind of stuck out to me. And plus, when we pulled alongside, thinking there might have only been two people on the boat and seeing all of a sudden all those, uh, the ladies with their children appearing. And uh, it was something to me, it was, it was almost surrealistic. What were you trained to do for a situation like that? Nobody was really trained to pick up boat people. Merchant seamen, there's, they're pretty competent especially if they do something like that. And, and uh, the captain naturally would know how to block the wind, you know, so the wind wasn't as much of a factor because they were on, like I said, the leeward side. And then from there, it was just, you know, getting uh, the people on board. And I guess for you and your crew members, um, it sounded like it was just instinctual. Like there was no question around whether or not you were going to stop and save these people you know it's the captain captain gene j-e-a-n i give him all the credit in the world for what he did i asked him when he returned home did his family know what had happened the captain he sent a story to everybody's local newspaper and um 
my uh, parents been to read the article in the local newspaper. So when I came home, one of my brothers had laminated that little article. But this was not Leo's only rescue. In 1985, Leo was also a crew member on the Overseas Alice, an oil tanker that rescued another boat full of Vietnamese refugees. Leo said this time it was in the middle of the day and the seas were much calmer. It's hard for me, even though I've seen it, still to imagine the hardship that somebody would have to go through to do that, uh, even though I understand. How I grew up in San Francisco, um, I come from a big family, eight boys, no girls. Um, we weren't middle class by any means. We grew up in public housing. So by standards back then, we were considered poor. But when I went out to sea and I go to various ports and seen real poverty, and I realized, no, you weren't poor. <laughs> you were eating for one thing and you had a roof over your head. But I think the Vietnamese boat people, that they're even above that seeing that, oh yeah, there's people overseas are poor because what they did was so desperate. I've seen that with my own eyes. That's something to me, it's on a whole different level. In 1986, Leo got married and decided to settle down and left his life at sea. Once you got married, the things were different. I realized I was gone for like seven months. I would come in, just be in for eight hours and gone again. And uh, it was too hard, mostly for her and for me to be separated. So I said, well, I gotta do something else here. I've worked for city gardening. I've done uh, county park ranger part-time and stuff like that. And I actually landed a job with a very well-to-do family and uh, they're worth a lot of money. So I helped do their landscaping and stuff like that. But I don't want to be known as that. You know, I'd rather be known as the guy who steered the ship. Leo had changed the entire fate of the refugees' lives by spotting their small boat in the midst of a storm. I asked him if he felt like a hero. No, no, because that's what we do. You know, we, you know, you're, <laughs> you're trained to report anything. Even if you don't think it's something, you report it. That's what we do. We see things, we report them. And then, you know, thank God they had a good cap. I think most American captains would have done the same thing. Leo's answer was extremely humble. I know many Vietnamese refugees and families like mine. To us, Leo was a hero. We are forever grateful for crewmen that saved our lives. So I've told my wife, I've always wondered what happened to these people, especially, you know, that little boy was wandering around all by himself. I don't know where they went. It could have been Europe, could have been the United States. So I wonder how these people are making out. If you or your family were Vietnamese refugees rescued on either dates or ships mentioned in this story and want to reconnect with Leo, follow our Instagram or Facebook page at Vietnamese Boat People Podcasts and look for details on episode 10. I'm Tracy Nguyen Mang and thank you for listening and helping us preserve history. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform. And if you like these stories, please rate us and share your feedback. And if you have a story to share, contact us at stories at vietnameseboatpeople.org.